In 2006, I read Eat, Pray, Love, the memoir by Elizabeth Gilbert. The book chronicles her journey around the world, which becomes a quest for self-discovery. In her travels, she discovers the pleasures of food in Italy, the power of prayer and silence in India, and finally, and I guess unexpectedly, since she had just been recently divorced, a new husband in Indonesia. Reading that book can make anyone feel that in order to find themselves, they just need a soul-searching, foundation-affirming trek around the world. But how realistic is that for any of us? Welcome to episode 103 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, business development, and relationship building. I'm your host, Julie Brown, and today I am talking with Keith Renison, author of the award-winning book, Tenacity. You don't have to get lost in Nepal to find yourself, but it helps. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, PR, and communications agency with team members in Boston, Los Angeles, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at nickersoncos.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. How many of you have thought to yourself, in order to search within, I really need to get away? Like, far away. Like maybe the vortices in Sedona an ashram in India, or the rugged landscape of the Appalachian Trail will really help me discover what the fuck I am doing on this planet. Now, how many of you have actually had the money or the time to do this? You know, endless days in your calendar to take off and find yourself. Not many, I'm going to guess. Well, good thing for us, my guest today already did all of that stuff for us. He actually got lost in Nepal, spending one night cuddled up and becoming bed buddies with a 1,200-pound yak. This experience, combined with a lifetime of other lessons, led him to develop what he calls his trip technique, an assessment which scores individuals on their strengths and weaknesses at tenacity, resilience, imagination, and purpose. And you can do this assessment right from the comfort of your own home. No trip to Nepal needed. So let's dive into this tool and the lessons that help Keith create it and how we can all use it ourselves. Keith, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good to be with you. It's afternoon where I am. It's morning where you are. (laughs) You say you have a ton of stories from a life well lived. But let's start with the stories that you say define the four parts of the trip assessment, starting with tenacity. You said, I found tenacity while being fired 33 times during my 36-month probationary period at New York Life. Not sure how you get hired almost as many times as the months you were there, but tell us about that. Well, when I got home from Vietnam, I was sort of bouncing around looking for what my life was going to bring. And I was uh, working as a disc jockey at night and a mortgage loan counselor during the day. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? And uh, I went for vacation with uh, with my fiance and I came back and we had a bowling league. And I went to the night for bowling before I went back to work and nobody would talk to me. They were all kind of avoiding me. And I'm going, okay, what's the deal with this? And finally, one guy took me aside and he said, "Our, our savings alone is being bought out by a large corporation. 
and you're on the list to lose your job. Mm -hmm. And that's nobody wants to tell you that. And so that was what was going on. So I started looking around to see what I was going to do next. And I met with my life insurance agent to find out if I could get a policy since I was getting married. And he suggested I take the test for New York Live. Now, I don't think anybody ever fails an insurance company's test. <laughs> I think they're basically after warm bodies. And I passed and, uh, and was welcomed with open arms by a gigantic man from Germany. His name was Wynn, had a thick German accent. He was like 6'2 and you know just a massive man. And he became my general manager. And he signed my contract on December 1st, 1975. And for the next 36 months, I was on a probationary contract. And that contract said that if I did not meet my stipend each month, that I had 30 days to do that or I'd be terminated. And so I would sit at the end of each month in the bullpen, as we called it, where all the new agents sat making cold calls, trying to find somebody to sell a policy to, and waiting to hear the click of the heels coming down the hall on the linoleum floor and at five o'clock, because he made us all be there at five o'clock on a Friday night. <laughs> And, and he, then he'd go around and just quietly lay the paper on each desk if you, if you needed to, to sign. And we had to sign what was known as a termination contract, which said if I didn't make it, I was gone. And over the next 36 months, I was terminated 33 times. <laughs> <laughs> so tenacity became a part of my life early on because I learned that the insurance business was going to be exceedingly difficult, but the rewards in the long run were, a, were going to be a, a life well lived because it would give me the opportunity, as you said in your opening, to have the ability to travel the world when I wanted to. I had a secretary that could take over and run things while I was gone, and the trip to Nepal was six weeks long, and I used every bit of that to find myself. <laughs> How old were you when you did that trip to Nepal? Let's see, that was 1995, so I was 48. Okay, so I, I alluded to this trip to Nepal in the opening, and you say that this trip, this six weeks in Nepal, is where you learned resilience. So that 36 months at New York Life taught you tenacity and going after things, but you said the six weeks in Nepal is what really taught you resilience. So tell us about that trip and and what you faced and how you... <laughs> You discovered your own resilience in that six weeks. When I landed in Kathmandu, I had my whole itinerary laid out for me. I had been researching where I was going, which was uh, I was going to go to base camp at Mount Everest. You don't have to climb the mountain. You can just right. go stay at base camp. And I, I wanted to do that. Um, it sits at about 19,000 feet. And so I climbed a lot of 14ers, uh, 14,000 foot peaks before I left. So I was acclimated for high altitude by the time I got there. My trip was laid out. I was ready to go. And I'm uh, landing in Kathmandu, watching helicopters land and watching them unload body bags from avalanches that had taken place with a snowstorm that had occurred that had dumped about six feet of snow in the Everest region. Yeah. And there were avalanches occurring and a lot of people killed. And so they canceled my trekking permit. So I had to completely redesign my trip with the help of a friend who I was staying with, who I had met on the first trip. I'd, I'd been to Nepal three years earlier with a friend and he helped me map out where to go for a, a second option. And it was to a mountain called Kenkanjunga, 
which is in the northeastern corner of the country. I had to take a, an airplane ride, which actually went right past Mount Everest. I got a lot of really cool photographs from the window looking out and up at Everest. But it was a single engine plane that was probably built in 1910. And it was bouncing all over the place. And it looked like the wings were about to fall off and the seats were moving inside the cabin. And it, it was a mess. I was just, I felt very lucky when we landed in Bhaktapur and I was able to get off of the thing. But from there, I took a three-day bus ride through the Himalayas, the foothills, to get to where my trek would start at a town called Kavali. And that bus ride was sort of all an experience by itself because you see these YouTube videos where buses are passing one another on cliffs that drop thousands of feet. That was this bus ride. And they fold the mirrors in on the sides of the buses and the buses actually scrape mm -hmm. as they go past one another. I always wondered why they were painted such wild colors. It's because at the next stop, they'd grab a bucket of paint and they'd start painting the scrapes again. It was just hilarious. The Nepalese people are so creative and inventive. So anyway, I got to Kavali, which was an old stagecoach stop more than anything else, the end trail getting into the Himalayas. And I, I was filled with anticipation because I had been told that this was an area that had a lot of crime. They had uh, people that were going in there and then disappearing. So I, I, it wasn't my ideal place to go. Plus, I knew nothing about the accommodations, which turned out to be zero. There was no tea houses at the end of each day to spend the night. There was no place to resupply myself as I went along. There was no place to find water. So consequently, I started out in jungle area at a lower elevation and had to work my way up to get to where I was going to be at a town called Top Lejeune. And Top Lejeune was a, a, a high enough up that I was going to get out of jungle and I could actually get into the mountains. And within four hours, I was lost <laughs> because I, I had to, I was going through these conditions that, where I was following a path that I was told by the people in Kavali that that path right there will take you to Top Lejeune. And I said, okay, that's good. So I figured, you know, two or three hours, I, I'll be at the next stop. And <laughs> I came to a lot of whys in the path. And you're going, all right, do I turn right? Do I turn left? Do I go up? Do I go down? What do I do here? I had a very poor map that I had uh, purchased in Kathmandu, and I had a compass. And so I started using that. And I, I kept going up in elevation and towards the mountain. So anytime I would look in the compass to see which direction to go. And in four hours, I couldn't have found my way back out if I'd have wanted to. It was quite a, a scary kind of condition because I was carrying about 60 pounds on my back. I had gone for, uh, with photographic equipment because I was a heavy into photography at the time. I had just published my first book of black and white photography and short stories and poetry. And yeah, poetry uh, sells really well. And so I've got all this photographic equipment. I've got tripods and camera bodies and a hundred rolls of film in a lead yeah. bag that wouldn't go through the x-ray machine. Yeah. I'm old enough to my first trips to Europe. I had those lead bags to go through the TSA so my film wouldn't get ruined. Yeah, you don't look that old. So <laughs> it's it Botox. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I started getting rather fearful because it was at that point that both my tenacity and my resilience started to kick in. I sat down along the side of the trail and I had taken a course in the 70s on meditation and biofeedback. And I knew how to lower my blood pressure, lower my body temperature, lower my brainwave activity so that I could focus. And so I sat down and I started to meditate using those techniques. 
And I started to journal right away what I was experiencing and what I was thinking and what I was doing. And several times during the day, I would do that. And I had a case of Cliff Bars with me. That was all the food I had. Because uh, I thought there was going to be tea houses at the end of each day and places to get more food and whatnot. So I realized that I was going to run out of food quick if I didn't uh, take care of myself. And at the end of the day, I, I happened across a small Nepalese family sitting across, along the side of the trail. And they had been kick, picking fruit in the orchards near them, and they were taking them back to their hut. And the mother and the father did not speak any English. But as I walked up, the little boy who was about six years old, man, his eyes got this big and he looked at me because he'd never seen somebody like me. I mean, trekkers, we wear wild, loud colors. I mean, purple scarves and yellow socks and red mm. shirts. And I mean, we're totally out of color coordination. <laughs> and he looked at me and it was like, oh boy, what do we got here? And he'd come running up and he said, who are you? And I said, you speak English. And he said, yes, which I'll tell you how he came about that in a minute. So I told him my predicament that I needed a place to stay. I was very tired. I'd started to wear a lot of blisters on my feet because my boots were made for high altitude and I was trekking in jungle conditions still. And he turned to his parents and explained to them what I had said and turned back to me and put his hand together in typical Nepalese fashion and said, Namaste, sir. Mom and dad would love to have you stay as our guest for dinner and we will give you a place to sleep. And my heart just leapt. I mean, it was like, oh God, good. I'm going to get saved by a six-year-old. <laughs> so I did spend the evening with them and they headed me on my direction the next day to keep on going to try and get where I was going to be. So my resilience popped up each day because each day I found that at the end of the day, I did not know where I was at. I did not know if I was going to get to where I was going. Nobody that I met on the trail spoke English. And I knew very little Nepalese. This is before uh, Google Translate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, of course, it wouldn't have worked out there in the wilderness anyway. Right. So uh, for the next four days, I pretty much uh, just followed the trail. And it, I would say the word Top Lejeune for the town and point. And, yeah. and people would, would point and point. Like, okay, so I'm on the right path. Well, as it turned out, Julie, if you had a target with cir a circular target in the center, was Top Lejeune, I was just walking around it in a great big circle for four days. And it wasn't until the fourth day that I ended up meeting three, uh, what they were known as school inspectors. So let me come back to the little boy in schooling. Whenever a family dies off in Nepal, if there's nobody to take over their home, the, uh, and there's not a school in the area already, they will turn that home into a, a area, a geographical school. And then they'll bring somebody in from like the Peace Corps or mm -hmm. the UN that will teach kids in the, in the area. And so this little boy had been going two valleys over to one of these uh, little regional schools and learning English. And these men that I met on this particular afternoon, I was sitting on this ridgetop. Uh, it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun was going to set in about an hour. And because this is in November. And I looked to the, my right down the valley and there wasn't a house with any smoke coming out of a chimney. I looked to the left and it was the same thing. It was just green everywhere I looked for miles and miles and miles. So I leaned up against a tree with my back on and backpack on. And I said, God, if you're going to get me to where I'm going, you're going to have to do it because I'm doing a really poor job. 
And so I closed my eyes and I actually fell asleep for a few minutes. And then I awakened hearing the footsteps of these three guys coming up behind me. And they were the roughest looking men. They were dirty. They were carrying kind of some implements with them. And I thought, uh-oh, is this people who make people disappear? What, you know, what, what have I got going on here? So I thought, well, maybe if I close my eyes, they'll just walk on by. And they stopped a few feet away from me and they kind of whispered to one another. And then one of them approached me and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, are you okay? Mm. And I said, wow, yes, you speak English. And he explained they were school inspectors and they had been repairing one of these small schools and they were now on their way back to guess where? Top of the <laughs> so anyway that's how so it took you four days what was it what was it supposed to take you i should have been there the next afternoon okay. when, I left, when i left cavalli at six o'clock in the morning i should have been there around two o'clock that afternoon okay so i i made a right when i should have made a left or a bunch of lefts when i should have made a bunch of rights i don't know and uh hey listen you're you're talking to somebody who to me north is always the direction you're going in <laughs> when Google Maps is like, go north on Main Street, I'm like, which way's north? Oh. Tell me right or left. I don't know. But my husband, he can look at the sun and he's like, Julie, that is north. I don't have that in my, God gave me many gifts. That was missing in direction is not one of them. So <laughs> in Colorado, we have the, uh, the, the wonderful advantage of the, the mountains are always to the west. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we should have that here. The water's always to the east, but it's not always right beside you. <laughs> you <know>? That's true. <laughs> so, so your next one, imagination and the trip assessment. Now, as a fellow skier, I'm not sure I want to even hear the story about how you discovered your imagination. Well, the resort, that, uh, for the people that are listening to this on a podcast, I have a, a background that uh, shows a ski resort behind me in the Colorado mountains. And it's a one that I volunteer at. It's called Winter Park. And I worked there for 13 years as a guest host where I helped the skiers in the morning find equipment and in the, the evening find their car. And during the day, I patrol the mountain with ski patrol and look for people that are in trouble. And this was my fifth day skiing in December. It was December 20th. It was a really cold day. It was windy and it was icy because we hadn't had a lot of snow and we'd been making snow and that makes for icy conditions. Terrible snow. Yeah. And my boots were killing me. And so I didn't have them as tight as I normally do. I had gotten new inserts put in them and they just weren't fitting well. And I was tired. I was cranky. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. And I rounded up to a spot where we would always watch people because it's where you enter a tunnel. And I stop at the top of that because I want to make sure people are going slow, that they're not running into one. A lot of, a lot of kids in that area. Mm -hmm. And I stand there. So I was rounding the corner of a slow sign. They put them up on bamboo poles and just a big sign that says slow on it. And my right ski caught the pole. My left ski caught an edge. They both went different directions and it actually flipped me up in the air and neither ski binding released and I broke both ankles the right ankle in two places and the left ankle in one and as soon as I stood it happened I stood up right away which is always oh. my reaction whenever I fall speed but oh god am I okay you know yeah. and I didn't feel anything I didn't feel any real pain 
and I got out of the bindings and I walked around the skis and a ski patroller who had been standing across from me came over and she said, boy, you hit really hard. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I, I actually think I'm all right. So I stood there and kind of gathered my senses, put my skis back in the binding, started to ski. And as soon as I started to turn, they wouldn't turn Yeah, because the bones were broken. So the most embarrassing call on the radio I ever made was to call myself a sled because I had to call ski patrol to come take me off the mountain. Mm-hmm. So back to your original question, because of having two broken ankles and I live alone, my son's grown, I, I have nobody in a two-story townhouse, I had to start using my imagination for absolutely everything. Yeah, I had walking boots on both feet. Mm-hmm. You know, they told me don't walk on the right one and try not to walk on the left one. And I'm going, oh, yeah, how am I going to do that? Right. You know, well, I wasn't experiencing a tremendous amount of pain at first. I think I, I was sort of still kind of numb. Plus, they gave me stuff in the emergency room. Oh, oh goodness, bless you. Sorry. Sorry. I don't know where that came from. My whole head went crazy. Like my hair just blew up. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. So over the next few days, you you learn to be creative. How do I reach stuff on upper shelves? Mm-hmm. How do I uh, get from the bathroom to the couch? I had a walker with wheels on it and brakes. My son had gone and got it. it. was my dad's before he passed away. You start learning how to order food that can be delivered, how to get grocery stores to deliver things. Sure. And this is in the middle of the pandemic anyway, mm. where we're all looking for those kinds of resources. Yeah. And, and I still wanted to continue my business because I, obviously we weren't speaking much, but I still had my blog I was putting up every week and I was, mm-hmm. connect, I was recording a lot of YouTube videos. And I actually had a podcast two days after I broke the ankles and I was on the podcast and she said, why are you not in bed? I said, well, you know, what's that going to accomplish? I might as well sit here and talk to you. Right. (laughs) So anyway, the imagination and and purpose both kind of surfaced a lot then because I had to I had to change a lot in my life. I had to Mm -hmm. change what my purpose was every day, what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. And my body wanted nothing more than to sleep. Mm -hmm. It was healing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so frustrating because I'm a type A guy through tenacity, with resilience, using my imagination to serve the purpose of keeping moving and keeping my life exciting and fun and being of service to people. So I had to walk the walks, no pun intended, for my trip system. And actually, it served me very well. So were there other things that helped you define your your purpose? I mean, I think you've said that you've discovered multiple purposes in life. And maybe your purpose when you were younger was something different than your purpose is now. Like, and I think that's how we're supposed to evolve. As, oh, totally. As like, completely. You're so on target with that one. My purpose when I was 16 was meeting girls and, and making my 57 Ford go really fast, right? Um, you know, I don't have a 57 Ford. I'm not uh, really looking for girls a lot anymore. Uh, and so things have changed a lot at 74. But I'm finding that, and I wrote this in my blog the other day, that people should have multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're single, definitely have multiple purposes. If you're married, they may narrow a little bit because of family obligations, but you can have a travel purpose. You can have a work purpose. You can mm-hmm. have a charity purpose. I think if we have purpose in life, we have a reason to get up every morning. 
And that's something I think a lot of people were struggling with during the pandemic. Sure. Okay. So I, you sent me a link to do my own trip assessment, which I did and I printed cool. it out. So maybe we can go through my assessment and you can break it down for me and tell me what it means. And then that way, when the listeners go on and do the trip assessment, they'll kind of understand all the different parts. Of course. So again, the trip assessment is tenacity, resilience, imagination, and purpose. And so you're scored. I think you're scored super active, active, and passive. Okay. Right. So my trip assessment is my tenacity score is super active. I, I would not have doubted it being any other way. <laughs> so it says, I can power up my determination to be fierce and persistent in reaching my goals. I am probably already a leader and love facing or taking risks, which I think I do. I think you, in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to like taking risks. Oh yeah, definitely. You know how to activate your tenacity muscle when needed and exercise it regularly to always be on your game. You have the ability to make it fun and find humor in the situation to brainstorm with others and to be a good listener and observer. You say, I love the feeling of tenacity, which is true, and the energy it brings to boost my motivation. So what if I hadn't, uh, what if my tenacity wasn't super active? Because I'm already now at like the super active. So like, great. Is there any negatives to having it super active? That's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that one before. <laughs> I love it when somebody gives me something new. I think that with super active people, what, what I have found, because I'm one too, is that we have a, a, a time when we will fall into complacency. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes from oftentimes from being bored. Yeah. I think that if we're not challenged often enough, in ways that are whatever turns us on. Mine is creativity. If I, if I get challenged for something creative, I'm on it. I'm, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, and physically, I mean, I, I raced bicycles up until five years ago. I mean, yeah. you know, I skied, mountain climbed. And I think that boredom oftentimes causes us uh, a lot of problems. I think we'll make decisions that aren't always in our favor. Mm-hmm. I think that we look for, for things to excite us that maybe uh, aren't, once again, in our favor. And I think the people that are super active need to have that stimulus. They need to have that goal-oriented kind of thing. People like us that have super active ranking on tenacity are always looking for the next challenge. Mm-hmm. And is in it. Do you ever wake up first thing in the morning and go, "My schedule is kind of light today. What can I do that you know?" Yeah, um, I think maybe people like us who are super active in tenacity, maybe we have a tendency to burn out because we look at an empty calendar and we're like, now we got to fill it. We got to learn something new. We got to do something new. And maybe that's the downfall. Cause I feel like that is probably my thing where when I see an empty day on my calendar, I wonder how quickly I can fill it with things to do when maybe I should just be taking a rest day. (laughs) You know, what if someone ranks passive in tenacity how can we work on getting moving that from passive to active really do a deep dive into self-examination if somebody has a lesser ranking in any of these um, character traits that's what they're that's what i'm encouraging them to do Mm -hmm. is to do self-examination and find out okay if i'm really not ranking very well at tenacity or resilience why what is there that I can do to be able to bring my score up later on if I want to take this again? 
-hmm. And I think that people look at uh, their work habits, their, whether they're getting right kind of exercise, whether, I mean, it's simple, easy, yeah. common sense stuff, diet, exercise, mental health, it all wraps up into one. I told you that one of the first things I did when I was lost was I sat down and I journaled and I meditated mm -hmm. because that was what helped me focus. Sure. I think the people that are passive need to learn how to focus on learn something, focus, you know, yeah. and to bring themselves into alignment for what they're trying to accomplish. If you want to become active or super active, you've got to be proactive. Yeah. I just, that was a good one. I may have to write that one down. <laughs> I'll uh, send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I was only active in resilience under active in resiliency. It says, while low moments hit you hard, you always find your, find a way to pull yourself back up. I agree with that. While you do bounce back, you don't tend to draw on the lessons learned or strengths you've gained from past experiences. I will also say that I make the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs> and it says that if you looked across your life, you probably discovered that you drew upon your ability to be resilient more than you realize, but you haven't given yourself credit for. People may describe you as being tough, but inflexible. And I would say that is me spot on. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that we did that well. Yeah. Um, Especially the doing more than you realize and not giving yourself credit for it. So many people have told me like, why don't you celebrate your wins? I'm like, because I'm, I'm done with that win and I'm on to the next. <laughs> yeah. We have to celebrate the small successes because the big successes are so infrequent. Mm -hmm. If you made a good decision, you need to celebrate the success of that. And you can do it in a small way. So for imagination, I'm actually surprised. I scored active. I kind of thought I would be passive because I don't really think of myself as like an imagineer. The analysis was you see imagination as something to tap into during those big brainstorm moments or blue sky moments, but not as relevant in your daily work. I agree with that. It says is presented with an obvious or incremental path. You'll take that before having to put in the effort to be imaginative and people will describe you as being smart yet realistic. I am nothing if not realistic, <laughs> you know? So I, I'm actually surprised. I'm, I think I almost teetered on the passive. I, I just made it into active for imagination. Yeah. Imagination is that childlike quality that we all lose as adults. And I talk a lot in my keynotes about how we all daydream at certain times in life about things we want, or we mm -hmm. daydream about the negative. Yeah. And it's the negative that's the more powerful. And you have to be able to look at those daydreams and, and turn them around, you know, mm -hmm. make them more positive and start looking at the kinds of daydreams that you want to be able to have. And you daydream on purpose. This is part of the, the biofeedback training that I had years ago was the brain will react to the positive so quickly if you give it to it. Yeah. So for purpose, I scored active. And in the assessment, it says, sometimes you tackle the day with drive and vision and other times you feel like the day is driving you. And that, that is hundred percent true. And when you think about your bigger purpose, you feel a sense of energy and excitement bubble up in front of you, but it also easily dissipates when things get tough. And I would say, yeah, like I, all I want to do is, is speak professionally on networking and business development. I'm so passionate about it, but when I lose a speaking gig, or when I, I'm finding it difficult to tap into new markets, like I get very frustrated because all I want to do is talk about this. No, I, uh, and the, uh, the pandemic made that even worse. It, mm -hmm. it placed us all in the same box where we were suddenly 
really frustrated at not being able to move the ball forward and we had to really slow down. And in that regard, I have to say that that was a period of time when I meditated a whole lot more than I had in a long time because I had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it allowed me to see that I wasn't alone because there was so many of us in the same box. And I, I could see that there was lots of things I could do that I could change my, my trajectory. And I started doing podcasts and mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm closing in on number 100. Nice. And, uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to still stay on top of your game about what yeah. you want to speak about because you, you know, for 45 minutes, I get to talk about my stuff with you, right. you know, yeah. and so in conclusion, how can people find this test so they can get their own, this, the trip assessment done? Um, I've got a real easy way. It's the trip technique.com. Okay. That's easy enough. I can put that in the yep. show notes. Yep. And that will take them right to my website. And it, it says trip, to, uh, trip technique assessment in the uh, toolbar at the top. And you can click on it and go from there. Oh, perfect. This was so much fun. Thank you so <laughs> yeah. much for coming on. Oh no, I've, uh, I'm glad we finally met. <laughs> I know. Some of these, you go back and forth and back and forth before you actually make it happen. But thank you for your tenacity and sticking with <laughs> Of course, super <laughs> active on that. There you go. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're welcome, Julie. It was interesting how my assessment aligned so well with how I feel I actually operate, good and bad. I think this assessment is like any other assessment we've talked about on this podcast, like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. Having an understanding of how we work, what propels us, what encourages us, what holds us back can only serve to help us be better in our personal and professional lives. So I encourage you to take the assessment to see where you fall on these four elements, tenacity, resilience, imagination, and purpose. Some of the answers and then the subsequent power tips that come along with them might surprise you. So, for the cocktail of the week, I did some research and it was hard to find any cocktails from Nepal. But I was able to find one video titled Nepali Best Cocktail and then parenthetically Mountain Man. And if there was a way to describe Keith's adventures in Nepal, it would be Mountain Man. Maybe lost mountain man, but mountain man nonetheless. I don't have exact measurements because there was only one video and no recipe, so I'm going to do my best guesstimate for you. The recipe in the cocktail looks a lot like a mojito made with dark rum and orange juice. Here's what the video did. He muddled some mint leaves in a glass, added fresh lemon juice and simple syrup, added ice to the glass, and then added about one and a half ounces of dark rum and topped with fresh orange juice. Stirred to combine and that was it. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. This Shit Works.